Welcome back, everyone, and thank you for joining us for today's podcast from Dublin First Baptist Church in Dublin, North Carolina. We hope you'll be encouraged today as you listen to our message. For more information, please visit our website at www.dublinfbc.org. That's www.dublinfbc.org. Now let's join the congregation of Dublin First Baptist as we listen to the preaching of God's Word. Chapter 7, we'll continue with our study uh, in God's hymnal. This, uh, these songs of worship, these prayers that God has uh, written. Psalm chapter 7, we're making our way. Uh, through there. In the superscription, a lot of psalms will have this little uh, section, maybe in italics, and uh, give some musical background and sometimes a historical context and things like that. And so we have a new word here that we haven't come across yet uh, here in Psalm 7. It says uh, Shigayim, and I have no idea if I'm saying that right, uh, but uh, as part of that is because nobody really knows entirely what it means. There's not a Hebrew word for it. And so uh, there's, there's some root words that are close, and it's possible that it means an ecstatic or very emotional song. It could also have to do not so much with the content or the lyrics, but the rhythm, that there's abrupt changes in rhythm, and that might fit better because we see very abrupt changes in uh, like the tone of this psalm and where he goes from one thing uh, to another. The author is also given there. It says it's uh, Shigayon of David. So David's a human author that God has inspired to write these words to us. And it says concerning the words of Cush the Benjamite. That's another difficult thing because nowhere in scripture is there anyone named Cush the Benjamite. And so um, there is some idea that maybe this is a play on words and it's talking about Saul. We know from uh, the content later on, especially in verse four, that David is referring to persecution he endured at the hand of King Saul. Uh, Saul's father's name was Kish. And uh, so there might be a little play on words there, uh, but there's no doubt that uh, he is receiving persecution from Saul here, and that's the historical context where we would find this is in 1 Samuel 24, 25, and 26. Those three chapters kind of give us a historical background for this. Now, the genre, there's different genres of psalms. Some are messianic, very much so. Almost all psalms kind of point to Jesus in some way or another, but there's psalms that are overtly that way. There's songs that are corporate worship songs. Uh, songs that are individual prayers, individual and corporate laments or uh, penitential psalms like we saw last week where David is expressing uh, his remorse for his sin. He's confessing sin. This one is an individual lament psalm. And um, I think it's important for us to understand what, is, what that is. Um, and there are times when it's important for you and I to sing songs like this. Uh, and so a lament uh, is, is unique in that, you know what, every human being at some point cries, they have sorrow, but lament is uniquely Christian. And here's why, because a lament is a prayer that is offered to God uh, when uh, life doesn't fit what we know to be true about him. All right, so a lament is a prayer that we offer to God uh, concerning our needs, concerning uh, our emotions, and our desire to move from fear to faith, 
but especially when life doesn't fit what we know to be true about him. And that's definitely what he's talking about here. Let's read it, verse 1 of Psalm 7. O Lord my God, in thee do I put my trust. Save me from all of them that persecute me and deliver me. Lest he tear my soul like a lion, rending it in pieces, while there is none to deliver. O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there be iniquity in my hands, if I have rewarded evil unto him that was at peace with me, yea, I have delivered him that without cause is my enemy. Let the enemy persecute my soul and take it. Let him tread down my life upon the earth and lay mine honor in the dust. Selah. Arise, O Lord, in thine anger. Lift up thyself because of the rage of mine enemies, and awake for me to the judgment that thou hast commanded. So shall the congregation of the people compass thee about. For their sakes, therefore, return thou on high. The Lord shall judge the people. And judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to mine integrity that is in me. O oh, let the wickedness of the wicked come to an end, but establish the just. For the righteous God trieth the hearts and reigns. My defense is of God which saveth the upright in heart. God judgeth the righteous, and God is angry with the wicked every day. If he turn not, he will wet his sword. He hath bent his bow and made it ready. He hath also prepared for him the instruments of death. He ordaineth his arrows against the persecutors. Behold, he travaileth with iniquity, and hath conceived mischief, and brought forth falsehood. He made a pit and digged it, and he fallen into the ditch which he made. His mischief shall return upon his own head, and his violent dealing shall come down upon his own pate. I will praise the Lord according to his righteousness, and I'll sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. Before we study this, won't you go, uh, join me in prayer? Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, as we look into your word tonight, uh, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be active and present right here in our lives, in each of our hearts, uh, that he would illuminate the truth that you have given David and that you want everyone here tonight to know. God, I pray it be so much more than an understanding and a knowledge, but that same Holy Spirit would also do his ministry and his work of calling us to respond to the truth that you present to us here. It's our desire to move from fear to faith so that we can glorify you and receive good from your gracious hand. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so in verses 1 and 2, David starts out where he typically does in Psalms. We have this very uh, standard Psalms outline of fear and facts and faith. And at the beginning of the psalm, he's typically expressing fear. Uh, at the end of the psalm, uh, he's, it's a very different uh, tone. He's uh, proclaiming faith and praise to God. Uh, and so how does he get from there to there? He does it one way. He always focuses on the facts. Facts about who God is and what God has done and what he can count on God to do because God's promised to do these things, all right? But first of all, in verses 1 and 2, he expresses his fear. Notice in verse 1, who does he express his fear to? He's talking to God, right? This is a prayer. He says, uh, in, a, in a very confident thing, uh, way, he says, O Lord my God, in thee do I put my trust. Save me from all them that persecute me and deliver me. So yeah, David, uh, he, prayer is his first response to fear, not his last resort. We see this often. It's not the first time. Uh, in, in Psalms 1 to 6, really every psalm being a prayer. And so we can learn quite a lot from that, uh, just in an example and in the construction, grammatically, of these songs, that we should take our fears to God. That's, uh, that, that is where we should go when we have fear. You know, do we value prayer like we should? And most of us, I think, would be honest enough to say no. Uh, 
Um, we're probably not living out praying uh, without ceasing like Paul does. Um, one of the ways I, I know that we can at times fail to value prayer is by not maintaining access. All right, David says also in the Psalms that if I regard iniquity in my heart, you won't hear me. There's a, there's a ceiling, and my prayers might go up. I can, I can verbalize them, but it's, it's bonk, bonk. And so uh, that's why Psalm 6, this confession, is so important, because when we confess and repent, uh, God is faithful and just to forgive us, uh, Psalm 6 being the first John 1 John 1.9 of this hymnal, and we can count on that restored relationship uh, where our prayers are heard by him. But he begins here in confidence before being very real with God about uh, his fear-inducing circumstances. And that we ought to be real with God. I think sometimes we, uh, in our prayers, uh, try to maybe sound eloquent. Maybe sometimes we can't, and we just can't find words. It's okay. You have a Holy Spirit who, Paul says in Romans, is groaning for you. He's interceding for you. Jesus lives, ever lives right now at the right hand of God to intercede for you. And he's much more concerned about your heart uh, than the actual words that are coming out of your mouth. But be real with God like David is here. And because um, God already knows how you feel. He already knows. So just be real with him. Pour out your heart to him, David says later on here in the Psalms. Uh, for he is our everlasting refuge. And now about what? What is he, what fear-inducing circumstances is he taking to God here? Well, uh, he's got uh, people who are persecuting him, and, and he's asking for salvation and deliverance. Uh, notice in the superscription he said, this song is about the words of Cush the Benjamite. But notice here in verse 1, he's asking for salvation from all of them. <laughs> so it's more than Cush, and it's probably more than words, too that persecute me and deliver me. In Hebrew, that word persecute, uh, in our context here in the United States of America, in a land where we still have religious freedom, it might be being suppressed a little bit, but most of the time our idea of persecution might be being made fun of for our faith or something like that, and that's not true throughout this world. There's places where people, uh, their life is at stake, their family, their property, for their faith, uh, and this is where David is. This In the Hebrew, the word persecute here is talking about being chased. Has David ever been chased? Yeah. Uh, being pursued and being hunted down. I mean, his life was at stake here. This wasn't somebody making fun of him. And he very poetically describes that in verse 2, lest he tear my soul like a lion. And uh, lion is often a metaphor in the Psalms, not just there, but uh, in our study in First Peter that we just finished up on Sundays, who is, who is called the lion there? Satan, right? He goes about as a roaring lion. And this is really what he's talking about here. Lest he tear my soul like a lion, rending it in pieces while there is none to deliver. He, there is the danger here uh, to David's soul. He could have said, lest he tear me, my life. But he takes it a, a step further. It's not just my physical being that is at risk here. It's, it's even my soul in the sense that my faith in God is at stake. My good... God's glory in that faith uh, being, being moved, uh, God's glory being taken and put on these fear-inducing circumstances. For David, it's persecution. For you and I, it could be illness, could be relationship problems, uh, could be financial problems, work problems. Um, when I take God's glory and by not having faith and by remaining in fear and put it to my fear-inducing circumstances, God's glory is at stake 
and my faith is at stake in him. So it is. It is our soul that's at stake here. There's a danger to his soul. There's danger of solitude. In David's perspective, he says in verse 2, there's none to deliver. No human to deliver him at this point. And so who's he going to? The one who can deliver him. The one who is sovereign and in control of all these things. It's a, it's a better uh, one to go to anyway. And the threat here is to an abandonment of David's faith. Not that he's losing his salvation, just God's glory is being stolen from the one who it belongs and put on his fear-inducing situation. This is a dangerous context. Nobody wants to be here, do they? We don't want to remain in fear. And so God gives us repeatedly in the Psalms uh, a road, a pathway, how we move from fear to faith. And so this is our next section here in verses 3 to 9. David examines the facts. Now the first kind of category he's examining is his innocence in verses 3 to 5. It's an affirmation of his innocence. Not that he's perfect, but in this particular situation that he's being persecuted, that he's suffering for, uh, he is innocent. He says in verse 3, O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there be iniquity in my hands, if I have rewarded evil unto him that was at peace with me, and we'll pause there, because what David's presenting here is it's kind of an Old Testament uh, Hebrew form of an oath. If I have done this, then let this happen. That's what he says in verse 5. But here in verses 3, in the first part of verse 4, he's saying, if I have done this, and he's, there's some facts he's focusing on. There's self-introspection uh, uh, going on here. Uh, the suffering I'm enduring, is it because of my sin? There's nothing wrong with us asking that. In fact, that's a good, good thing to ask. Uh, we should join David as he does in the Psalms and say, search me, O God, know my heart, see if there be any wicked way in me. And so uh, the reason he's doing this is that requires a different response than the typical, I'm, I'm suffering unjustly, help me to focus on the facts about who you are and, and what you've done and what you promised to do, and then I'll get to faith. If sin is the cause of his suffering, the effect, it requires a different thing. What does it require? Confession and repentance, uh, what Psalm 6 was about. And uh, so, but it's not, it's not. We learn that in verse four, the second part. In that little parentheses there, he says, yeah, Lord, I've delivered him that without cause is my enemy. Had he done that? Twice, in 1 Samuel 24, he's in the cave at Adullam, and his right-hand man goes, David, there you go. God's delivered the kingdom into your hand. Get him, get Saul. He's in there taking care of business, right? And, uh, and David goes in there and he, he's like, no, no, I can't do that. But he cuts off that piece of the robe. And David even feels remorse about that because he's like, I, I should not touch the Lord's anointed. I, God will take care of it. God will do it in his time. I don't need to do it. God will do it. That's the faith that David had. Two chapters later in 1 Samuel 26, same situation, almost Saul's out there. David is there and his people say, David, okay, round two, don't miss this opportunity. And he says, no, 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 I won't do it. David had, so David can plead innocence because in this situation he was. If it's Cush, the uh, Benjamite, who at, he's, he's telling Saul that David's got it out for him. David's like, I, I haven't. And he even calls to Saul, look, Saul, I could have I killed you, and I didn't. I'm innocent here. So we know uh, that the suffering, the persecution that David is experiencing isn't because of sin in his life. And we see David's character here, and there's an affirmation of innocence, at least in this particular situation. David's very real that in his, his life wasn't one of innocence. He was a sinner like you and I. He needed a savior like you and I. But in this instance, um, that's not the case. Now, uh, verses 6 to 9, uh, there's an appeal for vindication. All right, so in verse 5, he says, you know, if that's the case, then fine. Let the enemy persecute my soul and take it. Yea, let him tread down my life upon the earth and lay mine honor in the dust. Let him tear me like a lion. 
but that's not the case. So instead, he has an appeal here for vindication. He wants God to vindicate him in this unjust suffering. And the first thing he says is, Arise, O Lord, in thine anger, lift up thyself because of the rage of mine enemies, and awake for me to the judgment that thou hast commanded. Do you remember what we said a lament was? It's this prayerful expression to God uh, of sorrow because life right now does not make sense. The circumstances of my life, this suffering and this persecution I'm enduring does not make sense with who you are and what you have done in the past and, and what you've promised to do. It doesn't make sense with, with who I know you to be. And so David cries out. He's like, God, be who you are. Vindicate me. Awake. Arise. And uh, in that arise, it's a battle term. All right, a military term. Uh, the closest thing I think we'd have in modern day, like when I was in the army, we'd say, let's roll. All right, it's like, let's go, let's get them. Let's go wheels up, we would say. You know, get on the plane, get on the, go to do the assault, let's go. And that's what he's asking David, to, uh, David's asking God to do here. Arise, O Lord. And the second part of verse six, he says, awake for me to the judgment that thou hast commanded. He's saying, God, please reveal your character because right now it's been shielded. It's been veiled. There's a cloud around who I know you are, who you have revealed yourself to be, who you promised to be, but my, my circumstances right now are like a cloud around that, and I can't see you. I can't see you, and I want to. I want to know who you are. I want to worship you for who you are. So please vindicate me in this situation. Please awake, Lord. Awaken me so that, like, darkness to morning, I can see. I can see who you are. I can worship you for that. And then he says in verse 7, he's saying, announce, verse 7, so shall the congregation of the people compass thee about for the sakes therefore, for their sakes therefore, return thou on high. It's not just me, God. I want to see your glory. But when you do this, guess what else is going to happen? Other people are going to see it. That's what David wants. He doesn't just want joy in the Lord. He wants to be surrounded by tons of people who have joy in the Lord and find their satisfaction in him alone and worship him for who he is, that he's holy, that he's just, that he cares about justice, that he cares about his people. Is this ever an aspect of my prayer for deliverance? Or do I just want out? You know, this is what David's praying. I want out, but please use this so that the shield that other people have, the veil other people uh, have, where they can't see your glory and they can't see your character. God, please do this so that you can be worshiped as you should be uh, by the entire world. The congregation will surround you uh, and give you praise. And then he asked for an arraignment. All right, Scott's not here. I was going to talk to him. He's our judge, right? But um, this is what he's saying in verse 8 and 9. The Lord shall judge the people. These are facts. This is who God is. The Lord shall judge the people. Judge me, O Lord. He even asked for himself to be judged according to my righteousness, according to my integrity that is in me. Again, David's not saying he's perfect here. Uh, but in this situation, in this particular uh, circumstance, he's innocent of the slander and of what he's being accused of. And he's asking God to judge. You know, back in, um, back in verse 6, it's almost somewhat like uh, the imprecatory language we've seen in a few of these psalms where he's calling down judgment. But, you know, he's not doing anything that God hasn't already said he was going to do. He's just praying for God to do what he said he was going to do. That's what it said at the end of verse 6. Awake for me to the judgment that you have commanded. This is who you said you are. You're a God who is concerned about justice. Right now, I'm not seeing that. I mean, in my mortal mind, my little, uh, you know, David line of vision, not my God, you know, eternal line of vision, but I, I want to see you, and I'm not seeing that. 
So he's praying for God to do this, to, to be that just judge. He, he trusts that God is in, in a very factual way. He's calling him out uh, as that just judge. He says in verse 9, let the wickedness of the wicked come to an end. That's what he wants to see. Do we pray for that? I mean, it's easy to say there's wickedness. It's easy to identify. Do you pray, plead with God that it would come to an end? A rebellion against him would. And he says, but establish the just. And here's the thing. For the righteous God trieth the hearts and the reins. The King James for kidneys. We don't think our kidneys do a lot. Back then, that deep-seated emotions, you can feel it in your innards, right? And that's what they're talking about here. And he's like, God knows. God knows motives. You and I, we can only judge actions. We can. And, um, but God knows the reason why people are doing things. He knows the secret of slander that's going on, and he's just committing all of this to God. Uh, he's asking God to arraign. We've got to be careful that we don't ever appropriate that position for ourselves. There's only one judge. Only one. All right? And then uh, that's a famous verse. You probably had people quote it at you, right, in, uh, in the Gospels. Judge not that you be not judged. And uh, that's right. It's true. Now, they don't ever read like 14, 15 verses later where it says beware of false prophets and false teachers. Well, in order to beware of them, you'd have to discern and judge what we call judging. It says... Uh, you know, that we are to, um, that we can know a tree by its fruits. A couple verses later, again, in our view, that's judging. What, what Jesus says in the Gospels there is don't condemn anyone. You can't, one. You shouldn't, two. Because when you do that, you're appropriating for yourself a position that only Jesus Christ has a right to. And only Jesus Christ has won. In fact, Scripture tells us that in Isaiah, uh, Isaiah 11. I'll just read this for you, 11, 3 and 4. It's a prophetic announcement about Jesus and says and shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord and he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes neither reprove after the hearing of his ears but with righteousness shall he Jesus Christ judge the poor and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth and he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked in John 5 uh, 22 uh, Jesus uh, says that that is his position that he has won. For the Father judgeth no man, but he has committed all judgment unto the Son. That's Jesus' responsibility, judging uh, there. And then uh, lastly, in Romans 2, uh, 16, it says, In the day when God shall judge the secrets of men, like the hearts and the reins, all right, by Jesus Christ, according to his gospel. This is Jesus' uh, rightly won position as judge. And David's praying for it. Here we've got Jesus in the Psalms. I encourage you, as we go through this, look for Jesus. He's all over the place in the Psalms, uh, in a prophetic way. He's all over the place from Genesis to Malachi. And we should have our eyes looking for him. Uh, it is The entire Bible is a revelation of who he is. He has this honor. Uh, Jesus Christ has it. And it's not ours to, to perform. So he's given it to God here. And then finally, in verses 10 to 17, David erupts in praise. I love verse 10. This is one of my favorite parts, is when he moves from facts to faith, because here faith, uh, faith has reached its apex. Look at verse 10. My defense is of God, which saveth the upright in heart. Boy, that's a change from verses 1 and 2, ain't it? God, help me. I need a Savior. I need a Deliverer. There's a lion about to tear me in pieces. Now in verse 10. My defense is of God. He saves the upright in heart. He saves uh, those who are upright in heart. 
David has gone from fear of a lion to faith in the lion of the tribe of Judah. That's who he, Jesus is even here. Let me show you how. Is David upright in heart? He wasn't perfect, right? We know, we know what David had done wrong in his life. And maybe you're thinking, well, this doesn't apply to me because I'm not upright in heart. So maybe God isn't my defense. Maybe God isn't my shield. I can't really claim to be upright in heart. I disagree with you. If you're a Christian, if you have a relationship with God through faith in Jesus, right, you know what he did on the cross? He took your record of non-uprightness in heart. You're right. You have that. And he took it there. And you know what you got? You got his perfect record of uprightness in heart. <laughs> That's the beauty of the cross. And so David can say, and you and I can say, you're, you're my defense, God. You save the upright in heart because, Christian, that's you. You're pretty upright in heart uh, by God's grace and through faith. Uh, and this is that faith section. This is what the salvation of Calvary uh, provides you and I. And God is just. Verse 11. David's no longer praying for God to be just. Look at verse 11. This is a confident assurance. God judges the righteous. He provides justice. All right, when it says judgment, uh, again, King James, for, there's justice there for the righteous. And God is angry with the wicked every day. It may seem like they're winning. God, how come, you're, how come the wicked are getting away with this? That's not how it's supposed to be, because we've got this narrow little vision right here, and we don't see his eternal plan of a sovereign most high God. It calls him in verse 17. We have to trust him. David does. This is faith. You are just. Angry with wicked every day. It says, if he turn not, verse 12, if he turn not, this he is the persecutor. This is Cush. This is those who are chasing and hunting and pursuing David down. If he turn not, and I love even that because it says, if he turn not, which means he could turn. There's even hope. This is the grace of God. There's even hope for the one that's pursuing David. But, it, but if he doesn't, if he turn not, right, um, he will wet his sword. That he's God. All right? If he turn not, he, God, will wet his sword. He'll sharpen it. That's what it means. He hath bent his bow. It's ready to go. David has faith that God will perform justice. He hath also prepared for him the instruments of death. He ordaineth his arrows against the persecutors. Right, and so here we've got God's response to those who reject faith in Christ. We've got God's response for those who are wicked. And so it's, we're going to see in a moment, it's their own condemnation. Uh, their condemnation, their destruction is, is because of their own will. The wicked's rebellion in verse 14. Behold, he travaileth with iniquity. Uh, he, he hath conceived mischief. I mean, he is, has the birth pains of sin. He is giving birth to sin. It reminds me of James 1, 15, where James says that. All right, when lust or temptation, when we don't get it out, and when we let it sit, guess what it gives birth to? Sin. And what does that result in? Death. And this is what David's saying here in, in Psalm uh, 7, 14. Behold, he travaileth with iniquity. Sin begets sin. He needs to turn. But if he doesn't, this is what is going to happen. This is uh, the wicked's result for their rebellion. Verse 15. He made a pit, trying to get David to fall in there. But what's going to happen? He made a pit, and he digged it, and he's falling into the ditch which he has made. This is how it works. All right? God... Uh, this is how God brings judgment. Their own sin condemns them. Their own sin is the, the source of their destruction. It says, his mischief shall return upon his own head. What he had planned, it's going to come crushing down on him. It says, uh, his violent dealing shall come down on his own pate. Not you, all right? A different pate. That's a name for the crown of your head. 
some of us have more visible pates than others. But uh, that's what yeah, Richard, <laughs> he started rubbing. But um, yeah, that's, that's what happens. Never failing. These are facts. This David can express this in faith because this is who God is. This is what God uh, has done in the past. He's a God who doesn't change. Uh, and so we can count on him to do this for us into the future. We can look and, and know that grace will be ours in the future because we can look back at this reservoir of past grace. Isn't that what he's always done? It's important to look back. That's called gratitude. And you look back and you see this reservoir, this deep lake full of his grace. And then all of a sudden you realize you're standing in a river that's filling that reservoir of grace right here and now. And you look up and you see this gigantic waterfall of never-ending grace coming over. This is moving from fear to faith, as David's describing right here. And then love verse 17. I like it when there's a lot more praise in this, but God wrote it. Verse 17, one verse, but it's powerful. I will praise the Lord according to his righteousness. I'll sing praise to the name of the Lord most high. This is the eruption of faith. Praise is erupting here. Praise and worship are always the culmination of total faith in God a faith that pleases God. Notice how detailed it is. He isn't just like, praise the Lord, give thanks to God. What is he giving thanks to God for? I'll praise the Lord according to his righteousness, that he's a covenant-keeping God, that I can depend on him, that he'll never fail. I can put my trust in him and know, I can know that he's going to do what he said he's going to do. I know it. Uh, detailed, detailed praise. Our praise needs to be detailed. I'm thankful for the songs we sing. I'm thankful that they've got theological content behind them that lifts our hearts in worship to God, that strengthens, uh, that reinforces what we, we hear as we study his word together. I'm very thankful for that. Our praise should be detailed. Uh, our praise should be directed. It's to the Lord Most High, uh, El Elyon. That name, God gives us so many names in scripture for who he is. This one, the Most High God, El Elyon, not El Leon. Tommy gave me a hard time. He thought I said El Leon. El Elyon, the most high God. This is who he is. Really emphasizing his sovereign control, total omnipotence over everything. Every atom is in his control. So David can trust him even when he's being hunted down and chased. Isn't that what David did too? Yeah, when, I, when his right-hand man said, get him, David's like, no, I don't have to. I can trust you. I can trust that you're going to deliver me. And it's designed. I don't know if you ever uh, notice how many times in God's word, especially in this hymnal, we're going to see it a lot, that God says, praise me, or it's good to give praise to God. And he calls for our praise. I'm going to be honest with you. Has that ever made you uncomfortable? I mean, there's times when it did for me. I was like, because here's the thing. We're told not to do that, right? We should never seek praise. We shouldn't ask for it. Um, we're told not to do that. But here's the thing. This is why <laughs> it's very different. First of all, we're not God, right? And, and honestly, if God said to praise anything but himself, that would mean something else is more worthy. All right, so he can't do that. He's going to ask for our praise and our worship. But here's the other part. God demands praise because it's his design, yeah, for his glory, but also for our good. Like, that's why he wants you to worship him and why he demands you to praise him uh, because it's, it's his design for you and I to have joy. See, uh, praise is the culmination of faith. It's a culmination of our love for our Savior and our faith uh, in him and our love for him, our joy in him. That's what we're supposed to have. We need to have joy. I want Dublin First Baptist Church to be known as a place that is full of joy, and I think we are. 
We sing like we're full of joy. All right. And because this, when we are satisfied in Jesus alone, and that's where our joy is found, that joy is not quite complete until it's expressed. That's why God commands you to worship him. He wants you to be even happier. <clears throat> and that joy isn't quite complete. It's incomplete until it's expressed. When I was trying to woo Krista, all right, <clears throat> just a couple years ago, right? <laughs> I was trying to woo her. Right? And I would. I did I write you notes? I tell you how beautiful you were? Did, yeah. And um, how sweet you were. How I didn't think there was any, anybody ever that was such an angel like you. And you know what we do, right? And we meant, I meant it. But why did I do that? I mean, I believed all those things, but I told her because it completed my joy. Like when I wrote those notes and would say those things, it made me happy. I didn't just tell her, I went back to my room, right? At Bible college, and I told Herb, and I told Jeff, and all these, and they probably got sick of it, right? But it wasn't complete until I did that, like on a much less serious note. I mean, we do this in sports, don't we? Man, AJ, you did awesome. You set a school record. And we tell AJ, and then we announce it here so we can all applaud, because joy's not complete until it's expressed. When Christian McCaffrey goes in and gets a touchdown, right? Uh, you put it on Facebook. Wasn't that awesome? <laughs> Because, yeah, she's happy, and she's woo, woo, at home, but she, it's, joy is incomplete until it's expressed. And this is why God demands that we praise him. It's not just for his glory, like he's egocentric. It's, also, it's for our good, because he wants us to be happy, and he knows that's not going to be entirely complete. Our happiness won't be entirely fulfilled until it's expressed. And so it's designed. This is the design of God. Our praise needs to be detailed. Can we move? from fear to faith tonight. I don't know what you're going through. I don't think anybody's getting chased down, right? Your life's at stake. I hope not. Let me know if it is. All right, but I don't, your soul's at stake. Your faith's at stake. There's probably as many different people in here. There's as many different threats to God's glory and to your good tonight as we got people here. And I want to know, can we choose tonight to not give glory to that fear-inducing circumstance, to see it for the dangerous threat it is, to plead with God as we close in prayer, as we sing a couple more praise songs, we plead with him uh, to show us his glory, to take away that veil, uh, that cloud that shields us from knowing, because it's just, right now, it doesn't make sense. I know who you are, but this thing in my life, I cannot see you. And so I'm just asking you to reveal yourself, to solve it. There's nothing wrong with that prayer. It glorifies him. And we do this by focusing on the facts, that God's character uh, and his concern for justice is a very real thing, even when our hearts can't see it. Will we choose to see with the eyes of faith tonight? Can we, and even in times when we're experiencing that, can we offer up a God-glorifying lament? Cry out to him? He wants to hear that. He wants to show himself strong on your behalf. He wants to arise for you. He wants to awaken you to who he is and what he's promised to do. He wants to announce his glory to others. He wants you to do that in your life so others can see his glory in your painful circumstance and to show us who he is and what he's done and what he's promised. Can we choose to display faith tonight by erupting in praise? I want to sing a couple songs where we got that opportunity. Tommy's going to come and uh, let's erupt in praise tonight to the Lord Most High. Amen. <clears throat>